Hi everyone, welcome to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding the light after perinatal trauma. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, birth trauma survivor turned podcast host. Today we are back with Nicolette for part two of her episode. In this episode, we'll discuss the emotional impact of her birth trauma, the physical toll birth trauma can take, and the nuances that make birth trauma so challenging. Tune in to hear more from one of my favorite people. The day that he was rewarmed was the first day I got to see Mina. Uh, I worked, we have a, um, a department called Child Life, and they are amazing. Yeah. They are amazing. They worked mm-hmm. so hard to get Mina into the hospital, and they were able to do it. And she met him. And it was not the meeting, obviously, that I had hoped for. Yeah. But she had her grandmother. She had her babushka, Serge's mom. Serge is Russian. Um, babushka blow-dried her hair straight. And she put on her shirt that says, big sister, finally. Like, she dressed herself up ready to meet Alec. And, I like, my heart just is so full thinking about it. Because she was so purposeful in the things that she wore that day knowing she was going to meet him. And um, it was the first time that I got to see Alec without really any wires and awake. Um, So we got down there and the lady was talking to Mina about, this is the stuff I told you about. And she's like, what's this? She's like, this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just, as much as I wanted to hold him, I just I mean, I was in a wheelchair. I was going to say I stood back, but I was sitting. (laughs) I was, I just stayed back and I let her soak up this moment. Like this was her moment. And I remember I look back even, I have a video on um, Instagram of when she met him and she's like nervous and blinking her eyes. So I know she wants to cry because she's blinking her eyes a lot and she does that. And then she starts to do these like head movements, like, like this when she's trying not to cry. And she's doing a lot of that. And, you know, I was telling her like, it's okay to cry. It's okay. This is a happy moment. It's okay to cry. And she was fighting back those tears so hard. And they turned his head to face her. And her eyes just got so big. And she was so nervous. I could see in her her whole body, she was so nervous. And the lady took her hand and placed it on Alec's body. And it was just like, I she just wow. completely relaxed after that. You could see the shift. And... I, then I, then they had me hold him. He was naked and I was doing skin to skin with him. His eyes were open so big and he was taken in the whole room. And honestly, this was like the day, like this was like his birth. He was awake for the first time. His eyes were open for the first time. And he was just looking at the whole world through these big blue eyes. And I said, oh my gosh, like this is like watching him be born like a second time, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh after that I was like down there all the time trying to you know nurse him and I was pumping upstairs they moved me to women so now I was just like a floor or two above him so it was very easy for me to go see him now mm-hmm. my co-workers would come in and out to see me um but it was still really hard Mina um Mina was able to stay with me for quite a few hours in my room and they made an exception obviously because I worked there um and then Alec was discharged discharged six days later but he roomed in with me I was in the hospital for two weeks he roomed in with me um because Serge was in the hospital with me people family was taking care of Mina so he wanted to be with me um the only condition was that Serge couldn't leave me alone with Alec because I couldn't physically take care of him because everything was going on yeah, uh, I went on to develop an abdominal infection, which I knew what was happening. I knew it was happening. My JP drain, the initial drain that was put in a- after the first surgery, I could smell it. I could smell the infection and I could see that I was getting infected and I was telling the trauma team it's getting infected and they were like, no, it's not. And it was, I had a massive abdominal infection um, that required me to go under surgery and they were trying to stop my pancreas from leaking. I had like, apparently, I think it was a lot. My amylase levels were like really high. So they wanted to put a stent to stop the pancreas from leaking, but it didn't work. So like a 45 minute procedure wound up taking five hours. Oh my goodness. 
and they added an additional two more drains. So now I had three drains and the one on my left side in between my rib was the worst. I, it was so painful. I was like, I'd rather have a natural childbirth than have this drain in. And I am not about the natural childbirth for me. <laughs> I know that I can't handle that. Like, that's a lot of pain. But this drain was so painful. I was like, I'd rather do anything else than this. I don't want this. Like, take it out. Uh, but it couldn't. I actually, that, that, and of course, that was the drain that I had in the longest. Of course. It got taken out in May. <laughs> and I, I couldn't, it was awful, Cassidy. I just couldn't even stand up straight because of it. I was like curled in to my left side because of the pain. Um... They inserted the midline for me to get IV antibiotics. I wound up having a, an anaphylactic reaction to one of the antibiotics they gave me. Had no idea I was allergic to this antibiotic because I never had it before. That was really scary because it felt like, again, I was dying. Like I felt very far away and it was over hours that this reaction was happening. And um, that was a whole mess. Eventually I was, I was discharged on April 8th and I went home and I was scared. I don't know if you felt this way when you went home, but I was scared because it was like, as much as I wanted to be home, like I had people there 24 seven nurses, doctors, if anything happened, all I had to do was call out and somebody was in the room and now I was going to be home you know, and what if something happens? Yeah, I think that's totally understandable. I personally did not feel that way because I was in the hospital a full month and really just wanted to be home. And even going, I went back to the hospital like two weeks after I got home or like three weeks, something like that. And at the time, I think it was just survival. But I still had my therapy team. Did you do in-home therapy at first? No, I didn't start therapy until um, they did not – I didn't know I was going to need physical therapy. Mm -hmm. um, it was always just like, oh, once these drains come out, then I'll, like, focus on my emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. um, but once the drains came out, because I was like, I can't really heal physically until these drains are out because they're preventing me from doing what I, I have to yeah. do. I mean, I couldn't shower, Kathy. I had three drain like, they were just hanging – out of my body. I couldn't cover them with clothing. Like I didn't leave the house unless I had a doctor appointment because I was so embarrassed and ashamed of what was going on and what was attached to me. I didn't want people looking at me. Um, very, very uh, conscientious about it. And once the third dream came out is when I started to notice the deficit that I had physically. I couldn't lift Alec without pain. I couldn't go from a sitting to a standing position without pain. It even took me a long time just to like get into the standing position because I felt like everything was like stretching. Mm -hmm. And of course it was. I spent the last like three months in this kind of semi-fowler's position. Things healed and adhered at an angle. Yeah. So now I had to like stretch and break up that scar tissue. So I had went for my trauma appointment in June. It was supposed to be in May, but he went to Jamaica, lucky dude. And then he got COVID. So he had to cancel my appointment, which was upsetting because I had developed what they call stitch abscesses along my abdominal incision. So I had these like, I was calling them pus pockets. I had these little pus pockets that were like popping and pus was like coming out of my stomach along my oh abdominal my incision. So that like really kind of, I, I almost didn't mind my abdominal incision because it was very thin and I was like, okay, well, that's not bad. But once those happened, it like reopened superficially. So now the scar is fat yeah. in very different places, in nine different places. So it's not even like everything is fat. It's like, oh, it's fat here, skinny here, fat here, skinny here. So it looks just com completely discombobulated. So I had that going on. I told you my C-section, my C-section incision reopened as well. That was scary because I was like, great, are my intestines going to fall out? Like what, what else, <laughs> what else could possibly go wrong? Um, yeah, so I went to my appointment in June and I told him, listen, I'm still having a lot of pain. Like I can't lift my son. I can't bend down to get into my fridge. Walking up the stairs hurts. I can't wa walk more than 10 minutes without having pain. 
So he checked me for any hernias. That was, I actually broke out in a sweat when he did that because he had to push down on my Ouch. stomach. And I was like, oh my God. And I had no hernias. He was like, we'll do physical therapy. And I said, okay. So I called and they didn't have any openings in June. So I started in July, my physical therapy. Um, so yeah, from July to October, I made tremendous strides in physical therapy very quickly. It didn't feel quick because yeah. when you're in it, it never does. But July to October is nothing really. So, um, but it was all outpatient twice a week at seven o'clock in the morning, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like, oh, uh, I was like, I can't wait for this to be over. It's seven o'clock in the morning and you want me to do things that hurt me. <laughs> but my, my, my PT team was amazing. I thank God for them every single day. There were times where I went in and I couldn't even, I was so emotional that I was just like, I can't do anything today and so they would just work on like breaking up the scar tissue scar mobilization wow yeah they were amazing I think too like I obviously had a lot of scar tissue as well I think I mean I'd never had a major surgery outside of a c-section prior to this so I think and like the c-section you have scar tissue you know maybe a few inches around the scar but I literally had it you know, from like my belly button up and like my pulmonologist said to me once, so I had keloids all, all, all the way down Mm. my sternum scar, which was so uncomfortable. And then she said, you know, you have to remember that your, your sternum scar looks like that on the outside, but that's on the inside too. And I have never thought of it that way. And it took probably six months of treatments and that and this was like after I'm trying to remember I started I did an episode about uh, OMT and that's what I did to help break up the scar tissue because I couldn't even take a deep breath without pain yeah yeah and it's I scar mean, tissue it's is crazy even, even it is and it's not even with that C-section, like you have just around, you could actually have all the way inside internal adhesions or even your uterus adhering to that scar tissue. Um, scar tissue is very funny. It doesn't care <laughs> where your incision was. It, it could, it'll just kind of grow wherever. Wow. Um, and I didn't realize this honestly, until I was in PT, like, pelvic floor is very important too when it comes to even something like a c-section all the issues that I was having were relating back to the pelvic floor so I had to learn because you're because the muscles are going to heal this way and then up Mm. it's not like healing this and then down so we had to work on me getting those control back getting control back of those muscles that they had cut into and that I had lost strength in from what happened and my default was always kind of the like push out Mm -hmm. when I need to like pick up something or whatever and they're like do not do that you need to be tightening you need to engage this muscle that muscle and it took a really long because I couldn't feel too I had so much numbness from that c-section and then going up like everything was numb and then I had a lot of sensitivity in the on my skin Mm. like right above my c-section So I couldn't even touch it. Like they were like, do you do this at home? I'm like, I don't touch my skin. Like I can't even put lotion on my stomach, like that feeling. So I had to then start, they were like, well, you need to, you need to start mobilizing that scar. So I even still, even though I'm not in PT, I still am doing the scar mobilization because I have like on my left side, I have some scar tissue that still needs to be broken up. And I could feel it when I like kind of pull my stomach up a little bit, that C-section, like right the tail end the burning that comes with it. I'm like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta break that up. But it's different when they're doing it versus when I do it. Right. Cause I, I'm like, Ooh, that hurts. So I don't go any harder. They were like, literally, I felt like I was going to throw up every time I went there because they were really like yeah. digging in deep. And yeah. It's not fun. It's not fun. It's really painful, but my, my scars, they have so much movement to them now. I have very few places that still have some restrictions. So I'm really grateful for that. Because, girl, I could not bend down. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. 
Uh, it was really difficult to feel like I couldn't contribute to the household. Mm. I couldn't stand up and fold laundry. I couldn't vacuum. I couldn't stand up and cook. At one point, I couldn't shower myself. Yeah. You know, it felt really going from being such an independent person and a nurse to then being the patient and feeling very aged because of what I was not able to do really took a toll on me emotionally, uh, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. We talk about it all the time. It's just when you look about look at who you were to who you are now, there's so many differences in the grieving process. It is. You know, grieving who we were before this this happened. Yeah. And in my notes, I read once how before I went to rehab, the cardiologist apparently set my husband down and explained to him, like, she's not going to be back to stay-at-home mom for at least two weeks. And, like, two weeks is laughable at this point. Yeah. I mean, I am I am making massive strides. I'm doing so much better than many people on my team thought I would do. But to think that they thought in two weeks' time I would be back to being the sole caregiver of a then two-year-old and newborn is just ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, we, you know, girl, you know how I feel about that. It is so messed up. And you would think like you, these doctors and these physical therapists, like they are working with patients every single day. You cannot throw these blanket statements out and think that the care that one person's getting is going to work for the next person. Everyone is different. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my, the short-term disability company said that I was able to go back to work in June and I couldn't even stand up straight. I was waiting to go to physical therapy. I'm like, what do you mean? Do you know what happened to me? Like if I could go back to work in June, I would go back to work in June. And I think, but I could, yeah. And I think that that's the piece that is really, really frustrating because it's almost an attack on your character. Yes. I hate, hate, hated that I needed to prove that I was unwell. Yeah. And that they were just taking and pulling from notes in my, in my chart. Any, it almost seemed like anything that co-signed what they wanted, which was for me to go back to work. Instead of looking at, I put in letters of support from my coworkers, service line leaders, my friends, people that know me, that knew who who I was before this happened, and they didn't care. If it wasn't in the medical chart, they, don't, they didn't yep. care. They received them. They acknowledged that they received them. If they read them, I don't know. Um, there's just this. I don't even know what, I, I don't even know what stigma or misconception about what it is like to be a woman postpartum. Because even if you have a regular delivery and let's say you're nursing, you have a baby waking up every two hours. What sleep are you getting six weeks to go back to work? Mm-hmm. And the bonding with your ch- your child, like this country does postpartum care so poorly and we really, really should be modeling other countries like Germany who has you stay home for like a year, if not more. And a nurse comes to the house to check on you and the baby and your husband and they cook for you and they do this. I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> like I would have loved to have something like that. Yeah. Automatic physical therapy because every pregnant woman should have pelvic floor therapy. I agree. You should absolutely at least six weeks, at least six weeks of pelvic floor therapy. Um, I don't know what it is. And the mental health aspect is just, it's this country's doing so poorly with that. They won't even look at my mental health notes. I mean, they look at it, but they don't even consider it as part of my short-term disability, like at all. They're, they're like, we understand you had a traumatic birth, but we don't see how that's going to stop you from going back to work. Like, yes, I'm not an ED nurse. I'm not a med surge nurse. I'm not an ICU nurse. I'm a labor and delivery nurse. I almost died on the unit that I work on. Yeah. What do you mean you don't understand how this is inhibiting me going back to work? 
And now here I am with my hand forced, uh, returning back to work sooner than I am uh, emotionally or mentally ready to. So I kind of am like grappling with, did the birth trauma also take away my career? Because I am not able to take the time that I need to really heal Mm -hmm. from what happened to us that I wasn't even really, really processing until I stopped physical therapy. Yeah. So in that reality, you've only been processing it for what, seven months? October. About four months, really. Oh yeah. We're only in February. Yeah. I stopped physical therapy toward the end of October. So November, December. And then once I stopped, I will tell you, Kathy, that's when my mental health took a turn for the worst. That was when I felt the worst outside of like, other than like when I came home from the hospital. Wow. I really, cause now there's nothing, there's no drains. There's no, not that there isn't any more support, but you know, all that support happens in the beginning. And then eventually mm-hmm. You know, people have to live their lives. I can't expect people to be at my beck and call for the rest of my life because this happened. Serge had to go back to work. My sister works. My my coworkers work. You know, my best friends aren't in the same state as me. So it's like, and then my other best friend, she she doesn't live too far away, but she has a baby of her own. How can I call upon people? When everyone has a life yeah. outside of me. And I have, I had and still continue to have a wonderful support system. But there was a lot of times where I didn't ask for help because I needed to do it on my own. Because I was going to be alone at some point and I needed to be able to do it. So I stopped asking for help. And when October, when the end of my PT happened in October... I was hit with like everything that happened. And I was like, why haven't I felt this way? Why haven't I felt this way this whole time? And it was like, well, duh. I was preoccupied with, oh, I just need to get my drains out. Oh, I got to finish physical therapy and I have to be a mom and I have to be this and I have to be that. And then when all of, a lot of those things were gone, it was like, well, now you have to deal with this. Yeah. And I will tell you, I was in the darkest place I had ever been in my life. And I I have been through some stuff and I have been in dark places, but this was something completely different. And I didn't want to feel that way. Yeah. But I, I was, you know, and I was actually afraid. And I told Serge, I could understand why these things happen, why people kill themselves or why these moms snap and hurt their children. Like we've been discussing lately about the Clancy case and the other moms that have postpartum psychosis or postpartum depression, which I was never diagnosed with postpartum depression. I was diagnosed with PTSD and major depressive episodes is what I was diagnosed with um and had this not happened I would have never had those diagnoses right um I told I had a therapist and a psychiatrist I wasn't taking any meds I was taking Xanax for my anxiety which I started taking when I was in nursing school is when I started meds for my anxiety because it got really bad and I wasn't even really taking my Xanax because I just don't want to be on medications. I was on so many pain meds and there were so many things that were like out of my control with what happened. If the one thing that I can control is no meds, like that's what I'm doing. And I truly felt like it wasn't going to benefit me. I said to my therapist, if I am willing to put in the hard work of healing, why is everyone trying to throw meds at me? Let me do it the way that I want to do it. But because I was doing that, I found myself in a really, really bad place. And I, for the first time, was like fearful for myself. And I had all the support in the world. And I did not tell anybody. 
what was going through my head. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell my therapist. I didn't tell the psychiatrist. And the reason why I didn't was because I was afraid that my children were going to get it taken away from me. So I kept it to myself, but I was struggling really hard. And Serge saw it and he was scared. He was scared. I didn't find out until recently that he had called one of our friends and was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm afraid. And he came home early. I was hysterical in our closet. Like my brother had come home from, my younger brother had come home from deployment. He was staying with us. Alec was napping. So he was in my living room. Alec was napping. We live in a condo. So there's not really many places for me to escape to like cry. Mm-hmm. So I was in my closet crying. And I told Serge, like, I'm not okay. And he called me and I didn't answer. And he called my friend and then left work. And that also is like, we're how far out now? And he still has to leave work for me. It makes me feel bad. Yeah. Like about myself, like that. I'm not this volatile person, you know, but I was at the breaking point. And how messed up is it that feeling like you can't actually get the help that you need because you're afraid that your children will be taken away from you Mm -hmm. to be deemed to be deemed like mentally unfit to care for your kids but mentally fit enough to go back to work is wild (laughs) um it weighs heavy on my heart, which just happened recently with the labor and delivery nurse that killed her children because it's like, man, the way she must have been struggling and either not getting the help that she needed or felt like she couldn't say anything because they were going to take her children only for her to wind up doing what she did has got to be the biggest mind-blowing event. Because I, I empathize. It's horrible. It is horrible what happened. And I empathize so much with her. Yeah. And honestly, if this was a year, if this was before March 24th, I probably wouldn't have empathized with her. I'd been like, why didn't she get help? Why this? Why that? Because I didn't understand. Because I never suffered with depression. I've been through stuff, but I've never been through something like this. Yeah. You know, the only, the only person that I've ever lost in my life to death was my grandmother. We've been so blessed to overcome health issues and car accidents and just, you know, all these things. And it just crescendo to this, this event. I couldn't understand these women before. And now I do. And my heart breaks knowing that it was preventable, but she couldn't, she couldn't get the help that she needs because in this country, mental health is not taken seriously until something like this happens, unfortunately. Well, my big question, too, is this happened, I believe, in, like, 2000, maybe 2001 in Texas. And so that was 20 years ago. What are we doing differently now for these moms? Nothing. It's worse now. I feel like it's worse now than 20 years ago. It's worse now. You. It's all about climbing this corporate ladder. Work, 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 work. Don't talk about your feelings. You have to be like a quote unquote savage, you know, just going through life and just independent, don't need help. And it's like, where, what happened to community? Mm -hmm. Why is it only when something tragic happens, do people get together to support each other? And then they talk about support this business, support that business. Well, are we supporting each other every single day? Are we checking in with our families? Are we checking in with our friends? Are we checking in with a person that we didn't hear from in a while? Like, what's going on? Why aren't they answering their phone? You know, like, are we checking in? And I think we're so self-centered as a nation. Yes. We've gotten that way. I don't think we always were, but we've become that way. Absolutely. I think social media has made it worse the pressures that are on women that were not there 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sad. It's really sad. And I didn't, I didn't realize it until this happened. And I also didn't realize uh, 
how many people I had around me that loved me so much, despite how broken I've become from this experience and how amazing uh, community, as terrible as I feel like social media could be and has been to our society, there are benefits like how we met, you know, there's this birth trauma community that I had no idea existed until I became a part of it. And it's just an online community, but you know, a lot of times, you know, it's very, what happened to me is very, very rare. There's not a lot of survivors and there aren't support groups for women that have had splenic artery aneurysm ruptures, but there are support groups for people that had AFEs like you and, or other birth traumas. And while our birth traumas are very different, the feelings are the same. Mm-hmm. The grieving is the same. Mm-hmm. Almost sometimes listening to some of the stories, it sounds almost exactly like what I went through minus mine was splenic artery rupture versus, you know, a placental abruption or an AFE or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the feelings are still the same. And just knowing that I don't have to physically talk to someone or be in front of someone to know that my words of encouragement are helping them or their words of encouragement are helping me. And they're not like that toxic, positive encouragement, <laughs> you know, like just be positive or focus on the baby and like blah, blah, blah. Um, it's act- because we've been there. So we know that like we steer clear of saying things like that. Right. Cause I'm not going to tell somebody something that I don't want to hear. Um, these support groups have been so instrumental in in my healing journey and it is a journey right I feel like we're we're gonna be healing the rest of our lives yeah and some days are harder than others agreed um like today for me was not like the best day and I think that's because I like have four more days until I'm back where my trauma happened and that's weighing very heavily on me but yesterday was great you know and it's it's just, it's such a roller coaster and groups like yours, people like you, it almost makes me forget how brutal society is. Yeah. Like when you and I talk, I feel like I'm in this little bubble <laughs> and even though you're in Florida and I'm in Virginia, I feel like I just want to walk down the block to your house and like sit down and under a blanket, drink some tea and just, you know, just have this little, this little sesh that we have through the, the video chats that we do. You got your tea? I had water. <laughs> I don't have my tea right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> okay. So this question, this question actually, after I read your answer to this, had me trying to think of a way I could word it better. So the question is, has there been anything that has helped you recover from your birth trauma? And your first sentence is, I'm not recovered. I don't, the second, I don't think I ever will be. And I think that that is such an important piece to notate that wherever you are in your recovery from your birth trauma or any traumatic event, whether that's the death of a loved one, a car accident, et cetera, like it's okay for you to say, I'm not recovered. Like it's okay for you to speak your truth. And I think I need to do some more thinking on how to better ask this question, but I'll let you answer the rest of the question. Like I said, I I don't think I'm ever going to be recovered from what happened because there's so many reminders, right? My son's birthday was the worst day of my life. And I'm expected to celebrate it every year. Like it's this joyous thing. Like my son wasn't even breathing on his own the day that he was born, you know? And I, and I, and I have a hard time saying like Mm -hmm. when I gave birth, because I I wasn't an active participant in his birth. It was a delivery. He was, he was taken from me. I didn't have anything to do with it. You know, Um, I didn't even get to witness it. So Things like that is why I say I'm not recovered and I don't know if I ever will be. Um, Like I said, it's a journey. It's a healing journey. And I know that with time, it may feel less overwhelming. 
but there still may be with time days that are really overwhelming. What happened was mm -hmm. like catastrophic. And it's supposed Absolutely. to be one of the happiest days of your life. And it was not that at all, at all. Um, and people don't want to realize this about mm -hmm. labor and delivery. It's not always a good place. It's not always the ending or the birth that you expected. Labor and delivery can be very, very dangerous. Low risk pregnancy, super healthy, and look what happened. You know, you never know. So, um, yeah, I don't think I ever will be completely healed from what happened or recovered, but I, like I said, have leaned very, very heavily into birth trauma support groups like yours, like um, Kaylee, Birth Trauma Mama, and Tila, the T on Birth Trauma. Those are their Instagram handles, guys. And yours is uh, Birth Trauma Stories. <laughs> um, these communities existing is so important. It's so important to feel heard and validated. And sometimes mm -hmm. other people are able to say what you're feeling better than you can. And it's so good to see that, uh, see that somewhere else, you know, like read that. And yeah. Like, oh, yes. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> that I couldn't articulate. And, you know, I think too, like, it's also important to note that it's okay oh, yeah, if you need to take a break from those spaces or, you know, like take a day off or a week off or whatever the time frame was off of social media. Mm -hmm. I, I have done that myself, like muted someone for a while or, you know, unfollowed them for a while. It's so important, like you said earlier, to protect your peace. To protect your peace. Yep. I started journaling. I have a, cause I always did a little journaling. Like I, I started a journal mm -hmm. for Mina when I was pregnant for her. And I started one for Alec when I was pregnant for him, but I didn't have one for myself. I do have one for myself. It's not a great journal. Like if someone reads it, they're going to be like, they'll probably need <laughs> therapy after it. I call it my trauma journal. And I started it in June. And when I have felt my darkest or I'm struggling yeah. is when I write in it. Um, Cause when I'm having good days, that's when I tend to write mm. in the kids journals. So I don't, I don't ever want my children feel the weight of what happened. I don't want my trauma to spill out of me onto them. So that's another thing that has been really difficult with this whole experience because I'm a different yeah. mom now than I was with Mina. I'm, I have less tolerance for noise or I get easily irritated or I get tapped out. And I wasn't like that before with Mina. And I know that Alec is not getting the same mom that Mina got. And it hurts my heart. Um, cause I was just so carefree and now I'm not, but it doesn't mean that he's getting less love. He's not, it's just mama has to work through some stuff mm -hmm. and I need to know when yeah. to ask for help. And to say, I can't, I need to step away from this so that those things don't spill out yeah. onto my children. That's been pretty challenging. And then I have been exploring my faith, also leaning into God, knowing that me and Alex's survival and health afterwards is nothing short of miraculous. As hard as it is for me to hear that from other people, I feel very like, no, 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 Alec is the miracle. They're like, no, yeah. honey, you are too. I, I don't want to take that. I don't know why I feel so, uh, I don't know, mm. undeserving maybe of that because, you know, I, I'm not anybody special. Yeah. So I don't know why I was uh, chosen to survive this, mm -hmm. this thing. Or why my son was chosen. But of course, I'm a mama. So I'm going to put it all on Alec and say, he's the miracle. He's the miracle. Um, 
but it's nothing short of divine intervention. Just the way everything was, it seemed too orchestrated for it to be coincidence or on accident. Um, so that's, those are the things that I'm using to help me on my recovery yeah. journey. I think too often in our society, they are so toxic and so just overly positive and well, you're healed, you're recovered, you're fine. But life is a journey and there will be things in the future mm -hmm. that come up that unfortunately may re-trigger whatever happened during my birth trauma or your birth trauma or whoever's birth trauma. And again, it'll be a whole nother process to work through those feelings. I personally have found for me, because I'm not one to say, well, this worked for me, it's going to work for you. Because everyone's different. But what I have found works mm -hmm. for me is as time has gone gone on, it has gotten easier for me to deal with those triggers. So like last week I or two weeks ago, I started cardiac rehab at the hospital where my birth trauma happened. And I think I put on Instagram how my physical therapist, it's my, literally the first time I met her, I sit down and just looking into her eyes, it was again, almost like a kindred spirit. It was astonishing the way that she cared and acknowledged how being at that hospital was hard for me. And like my friend buying mm -hmm. me a cake pop at Starbucks, you know, just for a little Aww. something to make me mm -hmm. smile. And it's just little things. And like that friend, I didn't ask her to do that. Like she just did that on her own accord. And I think, yeah. I think it's amazing that God like puts these little mercy drops in your life to encourage you when you think that you literally cannot go on. It's yeah. Yeah. I really don't like when people are like, Oh, you're going to be okay. You don't, How do you you're not that? God. Look, you, you survived, you survived all of this. I did, but like, I had no choice. <laughs> you know, I had no choice but to, mm -hmm. to keep going. I'm a mom. What am I going to do? Yeah. Not take care of my children? Like, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Just stop everything because this happened to me. The world doesn't yeah. stop because this happened to me, clearly. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be okay. Because there was actually a point where I did not know if I was going to be okay. You know, and I still don't know. Some days I feel okay, like I said, and other days mm -hmm. I don't feel okay. Um, and I, it's also hard too. I had told you this once before when you have people that go through something and they're like, it's nothing like what you went through. And I really don't like when people say that because whatever it is that you went through could be the worst thing that you've ever experienced in your life. And you feel like it doesn't measure up to what I went through. Yeah. That's your trauma. And my trauma is my trauma. And it, it reminds me of this quote that said something like, someone who drowns in seven feet of water is just as dead as someone who drowns in 20 mm. feet of water. Like, we have our traumas. Yours is yours. Mine is mine. We're all just trying to yep. make it through. So there's no need to compare or contrast. Like there's no need to do that because your trauma belongs to you and your feelings are valid and my trauma belongs to me. I had mentioned, but I didn't mention it earlier, but I know I put it in one of my responses that my delivery with Mina was very quickly in vaginal and, but because she had meconium, the protocol is for NICU to be present during a meconium uh, delivery mm -hmm. because baby can aspirate and then they need to intervene. Um, this was 10 years ago. So when she came out, they put her on my chest. And before I was even able to take my hand out to touch her, like she was being taken to the warmer by NICU. So I just oh barely touched her and it didn't really, and she was screaming. She came out, she was screaming. So, um, now like they wouldn't take her if she was screaming, you know, they would put, we put the baby right on mama's chest, clean her up. Nikki would come over, listen, you know, and if they had a concern, they say, hey, we're going to take her to the warmer, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they just took her. And I didn't realize how much that bothered me until my delivery with Alec, because I never got to experience that 
what I do for my patients. The baby on your chest holding yeah. your baby and crying tears of joy and rubbing them and kissing them. I didn't get to experience mm-hmm. that with either one of my children. And now I'm being told I, I cannot have any more kids. Not that like I can't get pregnant. I have my uterus. I have my, my tubes, but that I shouldn't. It is not medically safe for me to get pregnant again. And it's like, I'm never going to get yeah. to experience that. And I didn't realize how much that bothered me until like when I was wow. writing that to you. I was like, oh, wow, this actually is really upsetting me right now. Like I didn't, it's been 10 years. So it's like what you said, there are going to be things that Mm. can trigger a trauma response years later. And you wouldn't even know. It's like, why is, why is this bothering me? Oh, right. Because I'm never going to get to experience that. But yet I, I go to work and I give that experience to other women. It's like, didn't I deserve that too? It is. It is difficult. And I have felt that too. My daughter was born with a fever and I had the C-section, but then had asked for immediate skin to skin. And they're over there. I've obviously looked at the pictures since then, and they're over there doing her foot stamps and doing her measurements and everything. And I've still not even met her. And I'm like, you knew my wishes. Why did you not why did you not honor my wishes? I mean, everything in that birth was out of my control. And I acknowledge the fact that yeah. I could have denied consent. However, I didn't know at the time that that was even a possibility. Yeah, you don't exactly. you don't know what you don't know. If nobody says you are allowed to decline this, how are you supposed to know that you can decline yeah. it? Well, these are the things that like when I go back to work, I'm going to take with me too. Like I've, I've been a part of some traumatic deliveries, um, you know, four steps, emergency C-sections. And I always now think about like, oh my gosh, are there any women out there that feel like I contributed to their trauma? I really hope not. So I'm going to be so conscious, conscientious with the care that I give my patients because you don't know what it is that you can do that can cause mm-hmm. a trauma to someone. You may feel like it's insignificant, you know, like especially nurse seasoned nurses, they're just so used to doing whatever they do, not realizing that like, Hey, that may be a little insensitive to that patient and that's going to stick with them for yep. the rest of their lives and the subsequent pregnancies that they have. So if anything to come out of this for me is that when I go back to work, I'm going to try my best to make sure that my patients are heard that they know that they can advocate for themselves. If they don't feel comfortable advocating for them, I'm going to advocate for them. I don't care who doesn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> um, because, I, you know, I have to protect my patients. Yeah, when it comes absolutely. Down to it. So is there something that you love about yourself after having your children? Well, uh, after I had Mina, I felt like, amazing. I felt like superwoman. I was like, look at me. I just delivered this baby. I'm breastfeeding. I'm amazing. I make milk. I do this. I do that. I felt like such a superhero. Um, I felt sexy. Like I really came into my womanhood after I had Mina. Like I finally was like, this is what it's like to be a woman, not mm-hmm. a girl, a woman. And I was so proud of being a mom. My self-confidence, like everything just took off. I really, really liked that Mm -hmm. person. And now with Alec, I just, this whole, this whole experience has stripped all of that from me. And I don't actually really know what I like about myself post Alec. Um, Not to say that I won't find her, but I'm not there right now. I I lost who I was before. I didn't get a transition into it. Um, Mm. I miss that person. I miss her a lot. And... I can't even say that maybe one day I'll be her again because I don't think I ever will. I'm going to be a different version of her. Uh, That's what I'm working on. 
was part of my recovery journey yeah. is just finding out who I am post birth trauma because I don't want it to define mm-hmm. my my whole life and that feels like that that's all it's doing right now and I don't really like that cuz I don't like who I became I don't like the depressive episodes I don't like feeling angry yeah. I don't like crying all the time I don't like feeling like I I'm not strong enough mentally and physically so um I have to rebuild myself. I have to rebuild my confidence. There's a lot of things that I need to reconcile with and move forward. Like I don't recognize mm-hmm. my body. I don't even like I get undressed. I don't even look at my body anymore because it upsets me so much. So, um Yeah, that it sucks because I felt like superwoman at one point and now I and now I don't. Some people see my scar on my stomach and they're like, you're like a Viking. I'm like, okay, but I'd really rather not be a Viking. <laughs> you know, I'd really rather just be who I was before, who was super cool and awesome and amazing. And I don't feel that way. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, a rebirth has to happen. And it did happen. A rebirth has happened. And I need to find this new version. Yeah, I think that's totally understandable of not wanting to be a Viking, but feeling like these are just Mm -hmm. really the cards that you're dealt with and what are you going to do with that? It's not an easy process. It takes time. It takes support. Um, But let me encourage you that you are doing the work and that's Mm -hmm. important to pat yourself on the back. You're so welcome. Thank you. So we already Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about the stigma around asking for help postpartum. Do you, do you Mm -hmm. feel like your birth trauma compounded the pressure and the stigma around asking for, asking for help postpartum? And if so, in what ways? I absolutely think that it did. Like I had mentioned, I had a lot of support in the hospital. And when we came home, I mean, people were cooking us dinners. Like I didn't have to worry about how my family was going to be fed because we were taken care of. Um, The first few weeks, I really didn't even have to ask for help. People were just coming and helping whether I wanted it or not. I know. We were very blessed. They had family, friends, coworkers just – so incredible like one of my friends came from out of state and stayed with me like the baby would cry and she would just wake up and take the baby I'm like no I have to nurse him she's like it's okay I'm gonna take you pump I'm gonna take him I'm gonna take him um my my one of my best friends Ariel she really helped me um with even the way I was approaching Alec at that time because he I know he was feeling the stress that I was feeling and we were not like in sync bonding and we were in different right we weren't in sync we were in different frequencies and she's just like this calming wow presence and she rubbed off on me so I was able to then like adapt that when she was gone like you know just try not to freak out when he starts crying and like it's okay he's gonna cry let me cry just hold him and you know that's she really did that for me (laughs) thank you Ariel (laughs) um but even still, like I like I said earlier, you know, people have lives, mm-hmm. people have kids, and I found it really hard to ask for help, even though I needed it. Um, I didn't want to be a burden, which I felt like I was a big, big burden to a lot of people, even though they will say, no, you're not, no, you're not. I still felt that way. Um, but I was going to have to do it on my own anyway. So I was like, I just am not going to ask for help because eventually like everyone's going to go home. Everyone's going to go back and live their lives that are, that are normal lives. And this is my life. So I need to come yeah. to terms with this life now and do these things. Cause I have to do them on my own mm-hmm. regardless. So I had, so I think that, and then some of it too was like, well, I'm his mom. Yeah. I should be doing these things, even though mm-hmm. I physically couldn't. And it was absolutely okay that I couldn't. I beat myself up over it. Because I was like, I couldn't even bring him into this world peacefully. I couldn't bring him into this world the way his sister was brought into this world. I have to be able to take care of him. 
Um, a lot of it, like I said, control issues. I lost so much control during the delivery and the two weeks in the hospital. I felt like decisions were being made for me and I had zero, yeah. zero control. So like my issue now is anything that I can control, I do control. And I wanted to control that caretaker role. And to be honest, I couldn't do it. Um, I was forced to ask for help when I didn't want to. And I would cry because I felt oh, so no. like useless, you know, and it's yeah. like, I shouldn't have felt that way. I needed help. I needed help. I just went through something so traumatic. I almost lost my life. I almost lost my son. Like, why did I feel that way about asking for help? So I think that it's not always easy to ask for help either, but that birth trauma really, really, like I said, messed with my head and had me believe in things that were not true. Had me believing that people were going to be like, oh, Nicolette's calling us again. Like, ugh, when's she yeah. going to get it together? When is she going to like stop calling us? You know, like that's what was going on in my head, even though nobody, nobody felt that way. You couldn't convince my brain otherwise. Isn't it just so crazy how intrusive thoughts work and how we convince ourselves of those mm -hmm. things and it's just, I had like such a fight with myself and I actually had told her, this is when my mental health really, really took a decline. And I just had this little thought in my head, this tiny, tiny thought. My brain said to me, your children deserve oh, a no. better mother. And I was like, excuse me, like I'm the best mom for my kids. Like, who are you talking to? I felt like. I'm having this fight with my, like internally with myself. And I told Serge because I was afraid. I said, my brain is not being nice to me. And he was like, what? And I was like, it said this. And he was like, you can't think that way. I'm like, I don't. I don't think that way. My brain mm -hmm. is telling me that. I know that I'm a great mom. I know that. But my brain is telling me that I'm not. And I felt like it was two different entities. There was myself and my consciousness and then my brain who was like, oh, well, I don't know, girl. You can't do this. You can't do that. You're always angry. You're always crying. So you're probably not the best one. And your kids are prob probably better off without you. But me, maybe if I hadn't had Mina and it was and Alec was my first, maybe I would have listened oh to that God. voice. But I know. I know who I yeah. was before this happened. So you're not going to tell wow. me that I'm not, I'm not a great mom. I know I'm a like great mom. Like how scary to think. And that was really, it was really scary. It was really scary. And I didn't, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I told my therapist that, but I wrote it in my journal and I wrote about all the ways that I was a, a great mom because I knew that that voice. Well, and I think that that's lying. another perfect example of how you're doing the work because I too have struggled with intrusive thoughts in the past and just putting truth to them or even an insecurity. It's an interesting to me how an intrusive thought and an insecurity, I don't know enough about intrusive thoughts to think if that's why intrusive thoughts come up, if it truly is because of an insecurity. But just putting truth to it, like, you are the best mom for Mina and Alec. You are doing the work. You're doing a good job. You're doing the best you can on that particular day. I think that that's another perfect example of how you're showing up, not only for yourself, but for your children and Serge and, yeah, just doing the work. Thank you. Thank you're you, so Kathy. welcome. <laughs> You know, sometimes it's like you, it's like doing work and it's like, what is the work exactly? And sometimes it's just mental Ain't that gymnastics. the truth? You know, it's just trying to get through the next half hour and, you know, knowing that it can't always feel this bad. You know, in the, even in the darkest of moments that I've had, there's always been a light. There's always been little breaks mm. of joy from my children that I've experienced from my children, you know, like Alec doing something <laughs> so adorable or laughing or doing this. And it's like, Oh, you know, like these are the best moments, even in the middle of 
the worst mm-hmm. time of your life. And my daughter, she's, God bless her. Like, I don't know what I did to deserve her. She is so incredible. She knows. She's so empathic and knows what I'm feeling. She reads it on my face. I try so hard, but she can see it. And there were quite a few nights the last two weeks I told you when Serge went back to his country to visit family. I struggled with him being gone. This was the first time since the birth trauma that I was completely alone and the sole caretaker for 24 hours, 14 days straight. And Alec is a handful. He's a little boy. He tears up the place like he is Dennis the Menace. He is like a boy. And thank God I had Mina because she would help me like distract him so I could finish the dishes or whatever, whatever. And then I would sit down at the end of the night when he'd go to sleep, like just feeling, you know, when you're so stressed, Mm. you feel so tight, just feeling so tight and wound up. And then I would tell her that it was time for her to get ready for bed for school. And she'd come over and kiss me and she'd say, mama, I love you. You're the best mama. And I'm like, and I could always talk to her like straight up, like an adult. And I was like, really, Mina? And she's like, really? I said, you know, that means a lot to me because I don't always feel like the best mama. And she goes, I know you don't, but even when you don't, you are, you're the best mama. And I'm, and in all that darkness that I'm feeling, she says that and my heart is so sweet and I could just cry. I could just cry because she, she knows who Mm -hmm. I was before this, you know? And I think, I think, I think she sees that I'm trying real hard and Knowing that she sees, she knows what I went through. Like Serge, she won't talk about that day. She won't talk about Alec being the NICU. She don't want to see pictures, like nothing. It's very emotional for her. But she shows up for me in ways that like a 10-year-old mm. should not have to show up. But she does it because she wants to. And it's just those moments in all of this darkness that are so bright. They shine so bright and they stand out. And I will never forget them. I will never forget them. She's amazing. What a blessing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So where can people find you on social media? My Facebook is private, but I do have everything that happened from the birth trauma has been public. Mm -hmm. It's basically just my name, Nicolette Lewis on Facebook. Uh, Facebook and then my Instagram handle <laughs> is uh, Nikushka <laughs> and Nikushka is just like Serge's cute little Russian way of saying Nicolette Nikushka so it's underscore Nikushka N-I-K-U-S-H-K-A-A-A <laughs> underscore that's my Instagram that's public for people to see I post more there about like my birth trauma that happened and make my reels and stuff like that than I do on the Facebook. Uh, Facebook was more for like health updates for people that were like so interested and people donated Mm -hmm. to the GoFundMe that my sister had created for me, which is why I was able to stay home for as long as I did, despite, as you know, the short-term disability battle that I was going through. So anybody listening that has donated to that GoFundMe, thank you so much. Like we are so incredibly grateful to you because it has come in so handy, um, not having to worry about feeding our family a roof over our head or anything like that. We would not have been able to do that without the donors. Um, because like I said, working with short-term disability has been a nightmare. So (sighs) just so blessed by so many people that care about us and we're so uh, generous and willing to help in Mm -hmm. any way, shape or form. It's been amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap up? Um, I think for anybody listening that struggles or has a friend that is struggling, I think validation is very important. Mm-hmm. People need to know that they're not crazy for feeling the things that they yeah. feel. And that everyone heals at their own pace, on their own timeline. And don't ever feel guilty or forced 
into healing. That is just going to set you up for failure. Protect your peace and your mental health. Do not surround yourself with people who do not understand what you are going through. No one can truly, truly understand what somebody else is going through, but people that cannot empathize with where you Mm -hmm. are and who cannot meet you where you are on that day, at that hour, or that minute, do not need to be a part of your life right now. Because the most important thing is yourself. You cannot mom, you cannot wife, you cannot sister, you cannot friend when you are not okay. Yeah. So if you are a person of faith, lean into your faith. And you have friends and you have a support group, lean into them. Lean into them and know that you are never going to be a burden. These people love you and they want to help you. And if you need help, do not be afraid to ask it because people want to help you. They want to. You just have to be willing to accept it. And that is all I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. You're amazing. Uh, I hate that this brought us together, but I'm so thankful it brought us together. Me too. I, I, I actually am part of a, a, I joined a group, splenic artery, living with splenic artery aneurysm. And I don't have that, a spleen anymore or an artery for that matter. But I just joined because I'm like, oh, if there's women on there that are pregnant, you know, like mm-hmm. I need to let them, I need to warn them. <laughs> they need to get help. They need to like, you know, all these things. Every time a new person joins, it's sad, yeah. you know, because you know that this is what they're facing. And, you know, most of the time it doesn't rupture. It's not actually having a splenic artery aneurysm isn't rare. It's surviving the rupture that's rare. Wow. So, and what's even rarer than that is mom and baby surviving together. It's usually Mm -hmm. just the mom. But you see, you know, I see somebody else join the group. They've been diagnosed and it's just like, God, I'm so sorry that you have to live with this. But I'm so grateful that you're here because we can help you. Yeah. You're not alone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nicola. It Kathy, thank you so much for having me on. It's truly my honor. Oh, you're so sweet. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> uh, people are going to gag when they hear this. <laughs> All right, we should do a disclaimer. Get your your throw up bags <laughs> or garbage can or something. You possibly should. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, my dear, I hope at least for tonight that you rest well. Alex sleeps well and you get good restorative sleep. I will probably talk to you later in the week. Okay, sounds great. You get rest too and I'm thinking of you every single day. Thank you. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in today. We kindly ask you to head over to your favorite podcasting platform to leave us a review. It really helps with searchability and finding different podcasts. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, and you've been listening to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding light after perinatal trauma. Bye-bye.